0: I'm here with David Deptula at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Power Studies, where he is the Dean. Before that, he served 34 years in the United States Air Force before retiring as a Lieutenant General, with a distinguished career that includes piloting the F-15, helping plan the air campaign in Desert Storm, and serving as Deputy Chief of Staff for ISR and Unmanned Aircraft. David, thanks for joining me on Acquisition. Hey,
1: it's great to be here, so I appreciate uh, the opportunity.
0: Great. So you wrote an interesting piece on Mosaic Warfare along with some of your colleagues recently. Can you describe the Mosaic concept a little bit and differentiate it from multi-domain operations?
1: Well, it's an excellent question. Mosaic uh, Warfare is a attempt to drive a change in the nominal warfighting paradigm that has existed for essentially 100 years by capitalizing on technology advancements that are fundamental to the information age and moving us away from what I call the industrial age of warfare into the information age of warfare. So that said, it is fundamental in the context of capitalizing on the premise of multi-domain operations because it describes a paradigm that essentially involves every domain. What I'm trying to be careful here to describe is that, you know, the whole notion of multi-domain operations is just an evolution of terminology and thought that started back in the early eighties that culminated in Goldwater Nichols Act in nineteen eighty six moved us to a joint construct of warfare where there have been many attempts to try to get the service components to integrate in our approaches. Well, fast forward to multi domain operations, you know, that's a realization that when we fight it is not a fight in any one of those domains, but all will be involved, not necessarily to the same degree, but in one way or another, depending upon the nature of the particular contingency or conflict. Okay, break. So there are a lot of parts to mosaic warfare, but let me start, if I may, by describing for your audience an overarching premise, which is indicative in the name itself with the pieces of mosaic that makes up a if you if you just go back to you know i think of the romans and the mosaic pieces that they put together you know they're they're all fundamentally put together with very small pieces or elements of material but how you assemble those pieces can result in a variety of different pictures And so one of the basic notions behind Mosaic Warfare is can we get to a future where we provide a variety of capabilities, perhaps not delivered in a complete package, but that can be assembled and brought together in various ways to achieve different combat effects. Does that make sense?
0: Right. So when I think of that, I think of you know, smaller single mission or, you know, disaggregated platforms, which can which can do different types of roles. And then it's really in the networking and the overall construct of how you put those pieces together that you can create different types of outputs and affect ends in different ways. Uh, you know, one of the things that you were talking about before is that you said that platforms like the F-22 and the F-35, they're not just fighters. They're bombers, they're attack aircraft, electronic attack, reconnaissance, and so forth. So this Mosaic concept seems to be like, instead of just having one platform that does everything, a multi-role platform, You know, we can potentially disaggregate that and think about how we can put these pieces back together in different ways that create different pictures in a little way. But you know, would you say that the Mosaic concept, some of these you know, the sensing and the shooting parts of some of these systems would be disaggregated? Is the point to kind of disaggregate those platforms completely? Or will we have that kind of mix of these highly capable multi-role platforms in tandem with these disaggregated systems
1: as well? Well, first, yeah, you took what I said and re-described it in a way that is accurate. I did not elaborate on another fundamental concept that makes up the Mosaic concept, and you hit on it, and in its simplest fashion, it fundamentally has to depend on the ubiquitous and seamless sharing of information. That's fundamental to operations in the future, uh, particularly in a contested environment, which gets to the whole issue of not just disaggregated elements, but distributed command and control, which is a whole other subject area that needs to to be addressed but back to your second question um, of course we're going to incorporate the systems that currently exist we're going to have many systems that uh, are going to last many decades into the future so we're not going to get rid of them you know my goodness we've been operating b-52s now for over 50 years right and you know they get a lifespan we could be operating them for 75 we could operate them for 100 So that part of the concept that is the underlying basis for Mosaic is this whole notion of connectivity and how do we achieve it. So, yeah, all the platforms out there. I mean, we're still going to have submarines. We're going to have satellites. We're going to have armor vehicles. The issue is, are there ways to disaggregate some of these functions as we move into the future? So this isn't something that's you know going to happen in the next two years. But as we move forward in thinking about how do we optimize increased processing capability, get out of the industrial age acquisition uh, programs or regu- rules and regulations, how do we build capability quicker in a robust and reliable way uh, that can also deal with large uh, degrees of attrition that we really haven't had to deal with over the last 20, 30 years. So, you know, I talked about small elements. I talked about connectivity. And the other piece is working in innovative ways within the current acquisition structure. Because, look, let's face it, there have been over 140 reports on acquisition reform over the last 30 years, and nothing's changed. I shouldn't say nothing's changed, but not a whole lot has changed. It's still a ponderous, long process. So, The other part of this mosaic initiative is okay, how do we work within the system to get us to this set of desired outcomes?
0: Yeah, I want to loop back to the acquisition process a little bit later. But first, uh, one of the things that you were talking about with the disaggregated platforms is connectivity and distributed command and control. And one of the things that seems to come up a lot in these network nodes is that there's always a concern about the resiliency and the challenges. That come with that in terms of command and control, and you described a couple of great myths about the mosaic concept, and i'd like to kind of address some of these and could you dispel some of these myths for me so first, uh, mosaic will impose a single architecture yeah no come on
1: I understand it's a good que- these are good questions, so what I mean my come on is it 's not aimed at you. It's sort of aimed at, you know, whoever came up with this myth. And I would suggest to you that whoever came up with it is kind of stuck in the last paradigm of a unified single architecture. Well, if you're realistic, that's not going to happen anymore. There are too many players. You've got a variety of different services. You have thousands of companies. Don't forget the allies. And don't forget the fragility of the kind of a construct that one would put in place by doing such a thing. So we've got to move away from this notion of single architecture back centuries in terms of thinking about putting moats around the architecture and defending it. No, that's not the way we're going to solve this problem. We're going to do it with a variety of different means, and every allied system needs to be able to connect and share information across this ISR, strike, maneuver, sustainment complex. And the way to do that is not through a single architecture, but through the ability to communicate amongst a variety of different architectures.
0: The second one here, there's, there's a couple that are kind of uh, interrelated, but one is that the Mosaic concept will be a tightly interdependent portfolio. And then the related concept is that everything in this network must be connected at all times. How, why is that a myth?
1: Well, uh, of course not. First, one has to realize that, you know, that adversary has a vote and we're going to be operating in in part of the concept is to understand that um, while desirable, 100% connectivity all the time is, is a goal, but the likelihood of that happening is less than 100%. So, Part of the paradigm is to be able to understand and build a set of concepts, doctrine, and training to allow uh, participating elements in our allied forces, if you will, to be able to operate and still contribute to the overarching goals, even with zero connectivity.
0: One of the things that the connectivity and distributed command and control makes me think about... and I also kind of like like to bring up this idea of the industrial era versus the information era. You know, it seems that, and I think you've written about this, that, you know, even though we've increased the information content and our connectivity in the systems that we have, it seems that, you know, that has gone along with kind of industrial era mentality of hierarchy and um, centralized decisions. So you'll have like lawyers and generals kind of like on the line telling individuals at the lower levels what to do at each moment. Can you talk about a little bit like how how this connectivity can actually help us, you know, delegate decisions downward?
1: Well, it's a, you know, this is where leadership matters. And look, I had the very good fortune to build the attack plans for each and every day of Operation Desert Storm. And then 10 years later, I was the commander of the Air Operations Center for the initial operations against the Taliban in response to the 9-11 attacks. To describe to your audience the change in that decade, during Desert Storm and the preparation for it in 90 and then execution in 91, it was frowned upon, actually it was a court martial offense, John Schwarzkopf let that be known, but it, it, that was sort of an internal thing, to talk to anybody, from anyone talking in the planting cells in Riyadh back to Washington. Yeah, I won't belabor our, it's a great story, I won't belabor our interview with describing that, but the point I want to make is, and even though there were some communications made back, the bandwidth simply wasn't there to do the kind of data sharing that now 10 years later in the opening stages of Operation Enduring Freedom, here's a 180 degree switch we were not allowed to drop any weapon in Afghanistan without the approval of the four-star combatant commander of Central Command. So you go, in 10 years, we go from, you know, no control with any, you know, no discussion with anyone outside of the theater. In other words, you know, reach back was evil to 10 years later. Because of modern telecommunications and the advancement of technology, the senior most leaders wanted to have a say in every kinetic event. And then that was just exacerbated over the next decade by the introduction of large numbers of remotely piloted aircraft that provided 24-7 full motion video, which then resulted in even more senior level control over execution events. Now, you could do that in a permissive air environment with small numbers of force application events at any one time. But even then, What happened is, over that period of time, it was a very slow evolution. But we moved from this notion of centralized control, decentralized execution, which was a fundamental tenet of command and control, to one of centralized control, centralized execution, which was a Soviet model that we had trained uh, American forces was a suboptimal way to command and control. And we demonstrated that in the rapid collapse of the Iraqi command and control structure in Desert Storm. So it's not that this was done with uh, malice of forethought. It was just the progression and evolution of all these masses of data and information that could flow back to the highest levels. And the scenarios were of enough timeliness to allow that, what I call, it's not reach back anymore, it's reach forward but ultimately we have to now discipline leadership leaders as they get more and more senior to stay at their respective levels of position whether they're dealing at operational level issues or strategic level issues and staying out of the tactical execution we can only optimize uh, the initiative of american fighting forces by providing them broad guidance and letting those at the edge who have the greatest awareness then exercise that initiative. So it's a long way of saying we've got to move back to, and quite frankly, I would modify our command and control approach from one of centralized control, decentralized execution to one of unified command, because it's important that everyone understand who's participating in any kind of conflict situation what the overarching goals and objectives are, but unified command, distributed control, Decentralized execution, so control needs to be distributed to a variety of different locations and operating nodes to fundamentally counter the potential of highly centralized planning. I mean, I you know tell folks we get involved in a dust up with Iran. The time of useful consciousness of the Al Udeed air operations center, highly centralized node, is about four minutes, which is the time of flight of a Shahab three launched out of Tehran. And then you're done. Now, it's not just a problem of materiel or networks either. It's a matter of doctrine, tactics, techniques, training, policy, procedure. The whole dot MIL PF construct has to be revised to get us into a way where our American fighting forces can be much, much more agile than they are today.
0: Yeah, I had uh, Don Vandergriff on the podcast recently and he liked instead of command and control, he likes to call it command and influence. Kind of give more of that, you know, mission command kind of feel there.
1: Yeah, mission command is at the essence of what I just said.
0: Yeah, definitely. So one of the uh the last myths here on mosaic warfare is that it relies on geographically distant cloud services. And this is something that you know we hear a lot about cloud it's kind of it kind of was the buzzword for a little bit in in the dc area and there was even like this one incident recently where um, amazon had a cloud server out and rested and it just went down there's a power outage and people lost all of their data and it was this it was this big thing so it was like well you know now there's some resiliency talk about cloud but can you can you just discuss some um, why, sure. why Why is cloud, you know, not necessarily the, the focal point here, even though it's an enabler?
1: Well, look, cloud is in the context, look, I've, I've coined the term combat cloud and used it for many years. Not for the reason that you mentioned, but to try to shorten the description of changing the paradigm of individual weapon systems having their own concept of operation and operating them in parallel to one where we view individual weapon systems as information nodes in a much, much larger intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, strike, maneuver, sustainment complex. That's a lot of words. (laughs) Yeah. So ergo, the shorthand, combat cloud. And it's not dependent on reach back to some server farm far, far away. It's just the opposite. What personally, I'd like to see us do is invert the paradigm, particularly in the information sharing regime, where for, again, in the industrial age of warfare, we collected information with sensors and then we downloaded that information to be processed somewhere else. I want processing information derivation done at the edge and one of the advantages of this whole construct is that by definition the information age allows us to process information at degrees and amounts far greater than we ever have before and by the way when we collect information about 99 percent of what we collect is garbage so why do I want to be sending down all this garbage why don't I process it where I collect it and only share what's of interest So, you know, the the cloud is a euphemism for a different way to think about how we put together a warfighting concept. It's not a replication of any particular company's method in which they provide IT services. I wanted to go back to what you're talking about a little bit with
0: uh, the acquisition process. How do you see that the Mosaic concept can actually speed up the acquisition process?
1: Well, I'm not going to make any promises that it's going to speed up the acquisition process, but what we're looking at as we do more and more research on this concept is not to let the acquisition process and procedures that we have slow down the implementation of these new ideas. And uh, that's essentially what we're trying to get after and what we do in Mosaic. I just spent the morning talking to some folks from DARPA and, you, you know, they, they have some really interesting ways to attempt to do this. And so what we ought to do is, is capitalize on those kinds of initiatives. We don't have to wait to change the 5000 series of regulations, which, by the way, generally there is the latitude and authority to do rapid acquisition, prototyping, experimentation already resident inside the 5000 series. We also can't let them be an excuse. And that's what we're trying to get across with the the Mosaic concept.
0: One of the things you said about Mosaic was that it will not necessarily have hard delivery dates and, you know, specific budget lines. And that, you know, these Mosaic pieces, they'll mature at different paces and you'll have gradual integration. So do you think that points towards kind of a mission-funded account where you might have several different kinds of developments within that single account that can be started, ramped up, or canceled based on updated information? Or, you know, it's not, it's not always just the, the 5,000 process. How do, you, how do you see?
1: I love your idea of a mission-funded account because perhaps then we can shift the measure of merit away from cost per individual unit to cost per desired outcome or desired effect. And this is an area that we could achieve enormous efficiencies and effectiveness if we moved away from, again, this industrial age approach of thinking about cost per widget as the measure of merit. I mean, I'll use the example of stealth. People like to point to the fact that stealthy aircraft is much more expensive than a non-stealthy aircraft, when in fact, if I can do with one or two stealthy aircraft what it takes me 15 or 20 non-stealthy aircraft to do in terms of delivering X amount of effects at X amount of distance against these high-end threats, which one's cheaper? The stealth assets are. And so funding along mission lines allows one to shift the paradigm to not buying a particular widget or system, but it basically encourages design and developmental engineering with the idea of producing particular outcomes, not particular widgets.
0: One of the things that that brings up for me is the idea of the analysis of alternatives process before milestone A that's kind of like, you know, before you initiate this program, we're supposed to have this analysis of alternatives phase. And I think that the policy is pretty much to do exactly what you were thinking there. Is you're not looking at, you know, cost per widget. It's really like what are the desired outcomes? What are the alternative ways of affecting that outcome? And then down select the material solution there. What do you think is kind of unique about this cost per desired effect? Or, like, how would you well, change? Well, it changes the focus. Look, okay.
1: again, You know, we almost, that's why I like the term mission funding. Analysis of alternatives is a set piece process that we've used for decades. And generally what happens is they're not analysis of alternative effects, they're analysis of alternative widgets. I'll tell you a real short story. About a decade and a half ago, I initiated or an attempted to initiate an analysis of alternatives for GMTI, okay? In other words, the ability to detect, track, and relate moving ground targets from an airborne platform. Uh, JSTARS is the conventional way that we do that, but there are many, many different alternatives, you know, sensors from space, netted sensors in a fractionated system from a variety of different platforms in the air, large-scale sensors in subspace, if you will. And make a long story short, that was, you know, I'm, I'm aiming toward look at the different alternatives to achieve the effect of being able to detect moving surface. So I retired, left the position, and the powers that be turned that analysis of alternatives changed the title of it to the JSTARS AOA. Well, how do you have an analysis of alternatives named after a solution of the system that you're trying to replace? And so, you know, to the people that did that, they're going, okay, we need the next evolution of JSTARS. No, you don't. You need to look at what it is that you're trying to do. JSTARS was a tool. Now, you know, here we are a uh, decade, decade and a half later, and, and the Air Force finally got it because they're looking at advanced battle management system, which is more of a description of a set of capabilities and outcomes than it is a particular way to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think that, um, you know, with this mosaic concept, if you're able to kind of start some of these technologies, not necessarily with the requirement, but just because the technologies made sense in themselves, the it was coming around in the commercial sector, we could apply it in a certain way. And then... You can now start to see about, like, okay, now we can do an analysis of alternatives so we're not, like, tethered to that legacy concept and that legacy system and just, hey, what's what's the logical follow-on to this thing?
1: Yeah, no, that, that that's part of the idea. Look, we're still working with, okay, how do we now actualize that set of precepts that you just very well laid out? Okay, how how do we turn that into reality? Uh, What it means is a lot more experimentation, a lot more prototyping, a lot more kind of skipping to, you know, okay, here's what we could deliver today. You know, industry can do that. They can tell us what you can deliver today. All right, well, maybe we ought to skip what we can deliver today and look at how do we move beyond that in terms of experimentation, prototyping. And then at some point, you've got to build these elements to achieve the capability and the desired outcomes. So, yeah, experimentation, prototyping is a good, but at some point, too, you also need to go into production to provide the forces what ultimately will be the capabilities. And that also speaks to the importance of modularity in the way we build systems as we move into the future, which is different than spiral development. And so how how do you build a modular system? How do you build a modular ship, land vehicle, aircraft, spacecraft that capitalizes on these ideas of smaller elements of capability that describe the mosaic warfare approach?
0: And one of the things that the modular architecture kind of brings up for me is like, for example, you know, we've been talking about it for a while but it seems that when the Department of Defense kind of goes for modular, and they had that uh, guidance a few years ago, which kind of mandated modular architectures. But it seems that they already have a platform in mind, and then they develop the the modules in concert with the platform, and it all kind of is just like this one, this big systems architecture of the past again, but like with the idea that you can swap out these modules instead of, you know, develop these components independent. Or, you know, independently of a platform idea, and then once they're mature, then then you put them in, and as you were saying, you know, gradual integration with the growth of knowledge instead of presuming that the modularity can be programmed from the start. Well, look, it's
1: tough because you have, with, with any sort of the, large, the law of large organizations, the institutional inertia to doing things completely different is difficult to get by. By the way, all the defense industries, you know, their fundamental profit model is not to take what they spent years and years and years developing and getting approved and into the system and throwing it away and starting with something else next year. It's how do you evolve what they already have in the system? So, you know, there's some institutional elements that are resisting some of these new ideas. Now, don't get me wrong. All my industry friends out there, Every one of them has elements that are thinking about cutting edge and revolutionary ways to do business. But the typical profit motive. There's another division called the finance division that are interested in next quarter results, and that is part of the challenge that we need to overcome as we move into the future. I'm not laying this all on industry. It's also the case inside the Department of Defense at a more macro level. You know, there are those that will make the argument. Look, we're dealing with the nation's security. We can't just be hopping from one idea to the next great idea like Silicon Valley does. All right. Because and that's that's why you see and that's why fundamentally the military is one of the most conservative institutions next to the Catholic Church that's out there because security at stake. And if you got something that has worked in the past, you got to be careful not to hop off that horse very quickly. I'm not making excuses. I'm trying to describe what are cultural factors that are in place. By the way, I'm not knocking the Catholic Church. I'm, yeah. I'm a Catholic, so. Uh,
0: so William Roper, who's the Air Force Acquisition Executive, he recently took the Next Generation Air Dominance program. It was supposed to, it, it seemed in my mind, to be kind of like the logical follow-on to the F-35 program, and it would be like a similarly constructed program. But then he decided that he wanted to implement something that was called the Century Series, and he broke that program out into a program executive office. So there would potentially be several different types of aircraft, or even he was talking about at lower levels doing some of the components and subsystems like engines as opposed to a fully integrated platform. Can you talk about Roper's Century Series aircraft idea And then what do you think about that plan to make it a program executive office?
1: Um, Let me start with the last question first. Look, turning it into a program office is a smart thing to do because that's how things are turned into action. Okay. Now... You know, I have talked to Dr. Roper and others in the Air Force and have urged them to get rid of the kind of euphemism century series, because if you actually go back and look at century series, it was not a prescriptive acquisition approach. It just happened to be that those particular aircraft came out when they did, number one. Number two, what he's after is not building large numbers of aircraft, but doing much more of an approach that I described earlier in the context of prototyping new ideas, evolving concepts introducing modularity we produced over 7000 century series aircraft so i don't think that's what he had in mind the problems that were faced at the time in terms of developing century series were very much different than they are today largely they were aerodynamic and propulsion driven we can solve those issues on a computer today all right so we don't have to we don't have to build them to figure it out and this is what i think is really more important and and i think that You know, Dr. Rober would. I'm trying to reflect what he's actually trying to do here, and what really makes a lot of sense is his passion for moving forward this whole notion of digital engineering so we can capitalize once again on information age capabilities. In that, we've got enormous computational power instead of stamping out metal. And trying something by putting a test pilot in it and going and flying it, we can get across and get through some of these issues by doing the design on a computer and then putting the elements together. And quite frankly, the challenge today is on the integration of the software with the physical characteristics of an aircraft. It's not in the actual building different aircraft designs. So I hope that makes a little bit of sense and answers your question.
0: Yeah, it does. Um, You know, this gets back to something that you said about aircraft, that they're now acquiring highly sophisticated information-centric systems that happen to fly. Yeah. So can the information part and then the airframe and, and the engine propulsion part kind of be designed and budgeted for separately, and then integration programs logically follow on on top of that with higher levels of maturity? Or do you think it really has to be built in
1: from the very start? It's an excellent question. And I'm not going to give you an answer because that's something that needs to be looked into. But it's a nice description of looking at the alternative ways of bringing new capability to bear in the future that we haven't done in the past. In the past, it's, okay, you got to design the whole enchilada from the beginning. And generally what happens and why we end up with delays is because you know, there is discovery as one proceeds with the development of a program. And then people get taken to task because, well, wait a second. You said you're going to do this, but then you changed to do that, and there was a delay here. Because, well, why was there a delay? Because there was new discovery. So what you lay out is is something that needs to be explored in the context of, well, maybe we don't design the whole enchilada right up front. We do it in increments, and conditions change too over time. But again, there's a balance between, you know, how much research development. And uh, experimentation, prototyping goes on before you snap the chalk line and say, okay, we're going to build 100 of those, or 200, you know. But that's also part of uh, Dr. Roper's approach is well, let's not say we're going to build 2,000 of them. Let's see how this works out. So this is not easy. There is not a an equation that, okay, this is the way to make it happen and do it right. But we do know... That we can no longer afford a twenty to thirty year developmental process between idea and fully operational capability of a system. We've got to reduce that.
0: Yeah, I like the idea of digital engineering, but I'm not an engineer. So I, I just like as a historian, I kind of have a little bit of skepticism because back in the fifties we heard all of this systems analysis. They were doing it on a slide rule, but you know, they thought that they could determine from natural laws what correct engineering specifications could hit any kind of performance. And then at the end of this, in in the mid seventies, it seemed like, you know, after Packard's prototyping, there was a lot of people that came out and said, oh, we now have computer aided design. We don't need the prototyping that we used to have or that we used to need when we did, for example, the lightweight fighter program or the A-10. And then it seems like, you know, this is just a new kind of phase of that where we have better tools and all of that, but, It's not clear to me that we can necessarily predetermine correct engineering specifications, even for an aircraft or... Uh, Actually,
1: you can't. I was talking to... uh, Actually, yesterday I was down at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base, Talkin' Air University, and I had a sidebar um, with an engineer who was uh, going through there uh, from uh, test pilot school. And he formerly worked at Arnold Air Force Base in uh, Tullahoma, Tennessee, which has the panoply of wind tunnels all the way from low speed to transonic to supersonic to hypersonic. And I was talking to him about, you know, do we still need these wind tunnels, in fact, during a period of time where we have enormous processing capability? And in the short answer is that uh, in some cases, yes computational capabilities have evolved to the stage that in some circumstances you don't need wind tunnels anymore. On the other hand, particularly in the realm of transonic flight and hypersonics where thermal effects come into play, we don't have very good models yet and so you still need to do that physical testing, see what happens. So the answer is there's a mix you, you, right. you know, And ultimately, we're not going to go, I, well, we haven't reached the point yet, let me say that, maybe in 100 years, maybe in 200 years, where you can go from a computer process design immediately to production. There's going to be a whole operational test and evaluation phase in there, too. And that's where prototyping comes into play. Okay, let's see how this really works. So it's going to be a mix. But there are many, many, we can really cut a lot of time out of the developmental schedule with the uh, developmental engineering. And so let's see how it works. That's that's Will's proposition.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good way to say it. I think that was kind of, that mix of what you're talking about was kind of what I wasn't really hearing. It seemed like, oh, well, the digital engineering, we can kind of already solve these problems. But Look, I think there, you're right.
1: Yeah, there, there, there's no absolute. Mm-hmm. Okay and uh, particularly where we are. We have come, you know, orders of magnitude in terms of processing capability today where we were in the 1970s. You, you know, just uh, I don't need to give you or your audience a lecture on Moore's Law, doubling capability every 18 uh, months or so. Uh, so it, it is a enormously more feasible to do design engineering today than it ever has been in the past. But there are some areas where you got to go out and test
0: Right. And I think those new domains, you know, fluid dynamics seems to be one of those that's just really hard, especially at the hypersonic levels. and
1: Well, yeah, because you get into thermal. Yeah. Right. And that changes the physical structures, which then affects the aerodynamics and blah, 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 blah.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to kind of loop back a little bit to the uh, cost per desired effect. Yeah. Can you use that framework for me and discuss what do you think about the F15EX purchase that seems to be going through now?
1: Yeah, well, let me do it this way. First, let me start by telling you I'm the only officer in Air Force history who was fully combat mission ready in the F-15 at every rank from lieutenant to lieutenant general. Okay, uh, I flew the F-15 for more than 30 years. So I'm kind of biased in that I think it's a great aircraft. But its first flight was in 1972. And you can put all kinds of bells and whistles on it, new glass cockpit, increased uh, jamming, better radar. But the front aspect radar cross section is, I'm not going to say exactly the same, but it's still very, very large relative to low observable aircraft. And so you immediately get into a situation, and look, there's a variety of different alternatives for how one might use the aircraft, but in an era of constrained funding with a new national security strategy that focuses us away from permissive airspace to operating in contested airspace, I've got to operate in a very advanced threat environment. It's going to take a lot of aircraft to force protect F-15EX to operate in that environment relative to low-observable aircraft like F-22s and F-35s. So when you do the in-game computation of cost per desired outcome or effect, it's much, much more cost-effective to use fifth-generation aircraft than go back and rebuild an aircraft that had its first flight in 1972. Do you see any automobile manufacturers replicating models that were built in 1972? Nope. <laughs> okay, there's a reason for that.
0: Yeah, I heard something interesting that was something to the effect of, um, they asked Ford, who owned Saturn at the time, if you're only building, you know, a few dozen or a hundred aircraft, I mean, a few dozen or a hundred cars, or cars yeah. you know, how much would your Saturn cars cost? And they were like, well, they would cost about $300 million.
1: <laughs> Well, you know, that's the other part of this that needs to be incorporated into the discussion you know if you look at an aircraft like the b2 or the or the b21 people go "Oh my gosh it's really expensive well what what was the you know what was the unit cost of the last 747-800 that rolled off the line and it was approaching that and guess what it didn't carry bombs it didn't carry highly sensitive communications equipment it didn't carry sensors on board and it didn't have any low observability that allowed it to penetrate contested airspace so all of these issues of cost need to be put in the context of what is it that you're trying to do. The other part of this, and this is an intangible, is we're talking about our nation's security. We're talking about warfare. We're not talking about how do you build the most economically feasible commercial product. The desired outcome is winning in protection of the American people, and warfare is not an efficient operation. It is the most inefficient and destructive endeavor that mankind has ever come up with. So while we need to try to get the greatest value for our investment, we can't be pushed into a situation where we're judging systems the same way that we might go into a supermarket and buy a generic can of green beans versus a a uh, label can of bean greens because we're dealing with America's security here.
0: Organic, non-GMO green beans. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I like what you're saying there, and you've brought up a, a quote from Sir Frederick Hanley Page before a British aviation pioneer who said, nobody has ever won a war by trying to run it on the cheap. Nothing is so expensive as losing a war by saving money. So, you know... We talk about defense budgets a lot and the constraints that we have yeah. and um, what things cost. But from the future perspective of U.S. citizens, if they find themselves in a high-intensity conflict, you know, cost seems to become no object at that point. And you know, what we do today matters enormously. So, can you just talk about how do you think about the cost of preparedness and this thing that almost no one it seems discusses anymore, mobilization?
1: Yeah, no, it's a, well, it's a wonderful question. And, and one, we could spend an hour talking about all on its own, but let me take you, you popped in there at the very end something that I think it's important. I'm going to address the mobilization piece before I go in a, and finish off with the intrinsic value of the capabilities necessary to deter conflict. Okay. And this is, you know, it's a sensitive topic because there are whole services out there that might react to what I'm about to say, but there are some elements of our overall joint force that can be reconstituted relatively quickly, okay? And I'm talking about essentially the personnel um, that make up large numbers of our ground forces, that we can have the basic knowledge and capability resident in reserves, whether they be uh, the Army Reserve, the Army National Guard, Guard and Reserve writ large, and that's manpower intensive operations uh, like infantry operations. It takes decades to put together complex technological systems and the operators to do that function. So if we're in a constrained environment where we can't afford to maintain large numbers of active duty forces, then looking at relying to a greater degree and putting more active duty into guard and reserve that you can quickly reconstitute. When I say quickly, I'm talking about six months to a year uh, relative to a decade to two decades. Then that's something we ought to look into to be able to provide those capabilities. The next part I would like to say is that we need to take more of an enterprise-wide approach when we're building weapon systems. Right now, the Air Force is faced with a situation where it doesn't have sufficient top line to execute the missions that have been asked to do because it's been insufficiently funded over the last 30 years. So they're looking at retiring a group of aircraft that are worn out and tired and need uh, lots to get them back to flying shape. But the reason that they're worn out and tired is because they've been in the highest demand over the last decades. So we find ourselves, the Air Force finds itself in the quandary of potentially retiring aircraft that are in the highest demand to free up funds to invest in the future. At the same time, one of those aircraft can deliver the same amount of ordnance as an entire carrier battle group um, or two aviation brigades in the Army. So what are we doing? Because we're in these service stovepipes for budgeting, We may in fact be retiring what is the most cost effective way to accomplish force application with endurance and at a distance than we are building some of these other systems that are not as efficient. So I think we need to move to a much more enterprise wide view when we're looking at weapon system evaluation and making decisions. Now, that's a long answer to the second part of your question. The first part is much more difficult. And it's one that we at Mitchell are committed to doing, and that's to educating the American public on the virtues and values of air and space power. And across the board, all the services, all the domains, the reason we spend as much money as we do is because fundamental to the nation's security strategy are two principal tenets that have held constant for the last 30 years, regardless of administration and power, whether democratic or republican and those are one that the united states military as well as the other elements of national security power will engage around the world on a daily basis to shape and promote stability and peace in the variety of different regions around the world that humans occupy all right that costs money you need to have a rotational base so we don't drive our forces into the dirt in order to be able to do that. The second principle, Tenet, is that we need to be able to have sufficient quantity and quality of forces to be able to fight and win in more than one regional conflict at a time. Because if you don't, and we do get involved in one, you're just encouraging adventurism in another region. That costs money too. So the reason we have the forces that we do is to be able to execute and meet the demands of the nation's security strategy. So when I hear people say, well, you know, we have the defense budgets more than the next 7, 8, 9, 10, you name it, countries combined. I mean, that, that is such a display of ignorance. It is appalling because guess what? Those next 7, 8, 9, 10 nations combined don't have the same national security strategy that we do. So we're faced with a situation where we can do one of three things. We can either resource the strategy that we have, we can change the strategy to lessen the requirement, or we can continue to fund our forces at a level below what's required to meet the strategy and assume the risk that goes along with that. So, I think in a nutshell, that's our quandary. And we need to continue to educate the American public and the Congress who hold the purse strings over defense that, you know, the only thing, let me wrap it up with this comment the only thing more expensive than a first rate Air Force is a second rate Air Force. And you can make the corollary that the only thing. More expensive than a first-rate military is a second-rate military because war is an enormously costly and horrible endeavor. And being able to prevent it means to be strong enough to induce uncertainty in any potential adversary's mind to the degree that they decide or elect not to take any aggressive action that would require a U.S. response.
0: David Deptula, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. You bet. Thanks very much to you. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.